Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, friends. Thanks for joining us today. As you know, we are still in our Easter journey, and today we'll be looking at John 10, verses 11 through 18. So this is familiar imagery, right? If you haven't opened up your scripture yet, this is the one about um, the Good Shepherd. And so now I know you're all focused. Oh, yes, that's where we're headed. And so we're back into John again. Remember, it's that weird year. We're doing Mark, John, Mark, John. So here we are in John, and I, I think we'll just start with Alan putting this into context. Thanks. Um, yeah, you know, um, I think it's interesting that once again, the, the lectionary begins our passage for today right in the middle of one of Jesus's discourses, which is kind of interesting. I'm not sure why they chose to do that. Um, one thing to note is that this whole chapter follows on the healing or the, the restoring of sight to the blind man in chapter 9, which is a big deal. It's one of the signs, I would say, of John's gospel. And it also is one of the places where the Jewish religious leaders really show themselves in a negative light. So it's still kind of in the first part of John, the first half of John, before it we is. get to Lazarus, right? So we've got, um, yeah, it's kind of at that well, period of signs. But but, but remember, um, jo- Jesus' public ministry concludes in chapter 12. That's true. Okay. So, right? yeah. So, chapter 13 onward is is uh, the last week of Jesus' life, okay. basically. Okay. Yeah. So, that gives you a sense <clears throat> where this is, friends. Right. Right. Now, um, at the beginning of, of chapter 10, Jesus uses several different analogies related to this shepherd imagery and related to the keeping of sheep to describe his relationship with those who believe in him. He says he is the shepherd whom the sheep follow because they know his voice. And he also identifies himself as the gate to the sheepfold, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. allowing the sheep to enter the safety of the pen. And both metaphors are intended to convey the idea that those who believe in him find salvation and life. Great deal of imagery. Obviously, we can all hear that and read it. Um, let's go on a little more. How, how, do we under, how do we understand this? Well, I think it's important for us to talk a bit about um, this kind of imagery in the Bible, especially in the Hebrew Bible. The theme of Israel as the sheep of God's flock occurs throughout the Hebrew Bible as a metaphor for the idea that they were God's special people and that he cared for them. We see this especially in the Psalms um, a lot of times. However, in the Hebrew Bible, while the title, while the, while the image of a shepherd does apply to God, the title shepherd was also applied to the leaders of the people, whether kings or priests or prophets. And as the shepherds of Israel, it was their duty to tend or care for God's flock. But several of the prophets criticized the leaders for using their position to take advantage of the people instead mm-hmm. of caring for them. And here, I think we want to call to mind a particular chapter. That's Ezekiel 34. Uh, This is one of the most notable extended criticisms of the leaders of of Israel um, as shepherds, uh, or at some time, at some points in the chapter, they're even considered to be um, sort of wicked sheep mm. as well. And the idea is that the whole chapter really concerns the fact that the shepherds of Israel had abused their position to benefit themselves, leaving the people scattered and weak like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, 
And so as a result, God promises to be the shepherd of the sheep. He promises to rescue them from those who are taking advantage. He promises to judge the shepherds or the leaders, Mm -hmm. and he would become the shepherd of his people himself, leading them to good pasture, making them to lie down, seeking the lost, and binding up the injured. Mm -hmm. And there's some favorite, I think, images about God as our shepherd in in that chapter. Mm -hmm. The image then changes, and as... The shepherd, God promises to judge between sheep and sheep. So there were some sheep that were that had sort of fattened themselves at the expense of others. And so he would rescue the weak ones who had been oppressed by the strong ones. And then finally, in verse 23, God promises, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And so the idea is that God was going to intervene in this situation where the leaders who were supposed to be shepherds caring for the people but weren't Mm -hmm. Uh, and god was going to intervene and and see to it that his people were properly cared for so this is an interesting um kind of dual way they understand this passage because they are going to hear this text this scripture from the hebrew bible but they're also going to have their experience as in in a world where sheep and shepherds are just part of the Mm -hmm. regular world so i think this is a really interesting thing it's going to be very familiar to them on a couple i would think so Yeah. yeah so let's keep going and so how is jesus understood in the context of the shepherd imagery well i don't think anybody hearing jesus discourse about being the good shepherd would have failed to hear in the background uh, this passage from Ezekiel 34, or at least the, crit- the criticisms of the shepherds mm-hmm. of Israel by, on the part of the prophets. Now, in the early section of the chapter, Jesus contrasts himself as the shepherd whose voice the sheep know with thieves and bandits who are strangers seeking only to harm the sheep. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our passage for today, then, Jesus ships ba- shifts back to the image of a shepherd, but calls himself the good shepherd. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a, an unusual self-designation, unless he has Ezekiel 34 in mind. Either God is the good, as the shepherd who takes care of the sheep, or God's servant David as the one who cares for the sheep. But this title occurs only here in the Bible, and although there are another, other notable passages where God is described as shepherd, especially, of course, Psalm 23 mm-hmm. and Isaiah 40. It would seem, then, that what Jesus is doing is contrasting himself as the good shepherd with the Jewish religious leaders, whom he can characterize earlier as thieves and bandits and strangers, or here in our passage for today, he characterizes them as hired hands. Mm -hmm. And I would say that behind this rhetoric is a not-so-implicit criticism of the Jewish religious leaders. Mm -hmm. I think it's significant to note that this discourse follows the increasingly negative actions of the Jewish religious leaders toward Jesus, especially, for example, in John chapter 5, there Jesus heals the man paralyzed by the pool on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, attracts negative attention. And um, um, Jesus engages in extended polemical discourse about the leaders. And then, of course, it immediately follows John chapter 9, where Jesus heals the man born blind, and the gospel presents sort of at length the leader's interrogation of that man and their negative views of Jesus. And in both cases, the leaders place adherence to their tradition above the well-being of persons. And so the idea is that mm-hmm. I think the reader of the gospel is going to make the connection that um, the thieves and bandits and strangers and hired hands are are the Jewish religious leaders. Got it. So 
it, this is interesting because now we pull out that Jesus is this good mm-hmm. shepherd. Mm-hmm. So talk about that a little bit more. How does that come into the story? Well, that's that's the focal point of our passage for today, that, that Jesus identifies himself as a good shepherd. And he, he, he identifies what that means in a couple of ways. In the first place, Jesus uses this image of himself as the good shepherd to convey the idea that he protects his flock. He does this primarily by laying down his life for the sheep. Now, the idea of someone laying down their life or giving up their life is not unique to John's gospel. The phrasing here is mm. to lay down using the verb tithemi, one's life or sukane, is found only in John's gospel. Um, and that the shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep is portrayed here as the ultimate act of protection. But the contrast then is with the hired hand who runs from the danger posed by the wolf who scatters the sheep. And so here the imagery sort of shifts. And that's one of the really interesting features about John chapter 10. And in fact, you know, form critics and redaction critics will go crazy with this thinking that there were multiple original parables that have been merged together. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really buy into that myself, okay. but I just think, I think what we're dealing with is just the, uh, the, the flexibility of imagery in, in the way Jesus is using it here. And so the imagery shifts from the religious leaders as thieves and bandits who are the primary threat mm-hmm. to the flock to that of hired hands who fail to protect the sheep from the wolf who is now envisioned mm-hmm. as the primary threat. And the idea of a wolf threatening the sheep is used in the New Testament for enemies and false prophets and or teachers who pose a threat to the flock of believers. So the hired hands are faulted here for not caring enough about the sheep to protect them from the threat. I keep thinking of the wolf imagery just because we, um, we have just adopted an Alaskan Malamute. And she looks like a wolf, and she cries like a wolf. And when people see her, they automatically are are scared because she's really? this big, big, big dog. You she's know? a beautiful dog. She's beautiful, and she's actually really sweet. But I, I've been thinking a lot more about these animals. Um, and there's a there's a coyote. That's how we say it here in Nebraska. A coyote that's out at the lake. That again, um, it's interesting to see how people are are so afraid of that animal. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the imagery here, as as we're talking about it, is bringing, um, in my mind, different things. And so anyway, I I, I think the imagery really has both a very emotional sense, not only only in in the context of they're familiar with Scripture and how it's used, but in their own experience. Well, I mean, shepherding, of course, was was one of the staple industries of the Jewish people for centuries. And they would have been very familiar with the dangers posed by a thief or a bandit or a stranger or a wolf. Or a wolf, yeah. They would have been very familiar with that danger. Yeah, Yeah. and I think of the wolf in particular, that's a... (laughs) That's a different kind of beast than a person that's a thief or a bandit. I mean, this is a, a different kind of threat. Um, sure. Yeah. So any, anyway, interesting as I'm processing it. So let's keep on going. Um, tell us about Jesus giving up his life and how does that reflect his role as the good shepherd? Well, I think that's one of the primary reasons for this whole analogy of Jesus as the good shepherd, mm-hmm. because uh, I think Jesus is using this to convey the idea that he is going to give up his life. He is going to go to death on behalf of God's people mm-hmm. or, and or believers. Now, 
Prior to this point in John's gospel, there have been some clues that Jesus would give up his life. Um, you know, and we saw in the cleansing of the temple story that, that uh, Jesus said, destroy this temple, I will raise it in three days. Uh, in John chapter 3, we saw the, I, the, the statement that the Son of Man must be lifted up uh, in order that all who believe in him would have eternal life. In John chapter 6, he says that the bread that he will give for the life of the world is his flesh. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in John chapter 8, he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he. But in my mind, those statements are all kind of oblique, kind mm -hmm. of a little bit vague. Mm -hmm. Here for the first time in John's gospel, we have, I think, what you could call a clear passion prediction. He, mm -hmm. he, simply, he, he, he says very clearly that here that he is going to give up his life for the sake of others. And Jesus will elaborate more on this as we go on. But I think that's the main purpose for the whole image of the imagery of the Good Shepherd. Okay. Um, and so continuing on, if there's a shepherd, who are the sheep? Yeah. What's about the sheep? Well, the other major theme related to Jesus as the good shepherd is his relationship with the sheep. And Jesus says it this way in our passage, I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Now, this picks up a couple of related themes from earlier in the chapter. Uh, there, Jesus frames his knowing of the sheep in terms of the relationship that the shepherd and the sheep have, and he says it this way, the sheep follow him because they know his voice. That's John chapter 10, verse 4. Now, presumably here, the idea is that only the sheep that belong to a particular shepherd would follow him because mm -hmm, they recognize mm -hmm. his voice. But here Jesus says that he knows those who are his own, mm -hmm. and they know him in the same way that Jesus and the Father know each other. And so I think it's important to recognize that this kind of knowing is set in the context of a relationship, mm -hmm. that they know the shepherd in this way is based on the fact that they are his own. And um, earlier in the chapter, that's phrased with the, uh, with the pronoun idia, and here it's the simple uh, emma, mine. Mm. Um, and so the sheep belong to Jesus. Uh, this is an interesting, uh, one of the interesting um, uh, features we find throughout John's gospel, but also later in this chapter, is that the sheep belong to Jesus because they have been given to him by the Father. And we see this kind of language in John chapter 6, especially those who are given to me will come to me. Mm. But we see it in John chapter 10, 29. Um, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And mm. so this, this in indicates the idea that this relationship is created because God has given the sheep to him. Now, I will point out this differs from the new RSV. And one of the problems is that there are about four different forms in which this verse was transmitted in the Greek New Testament. Mm. And um, a couple of them make sense. A couple of them are kind of hard to, <laughs> hard to translate. Okay. But uh, it does seem that in the flow of the end of the chapter, it's best to, to stick with the Revised Standard Version translation. Mm. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. Because that just seems to be the flow of the chapter. Uh, uh, right after that, Jesus mm. will say, I and the, fa the father, I and the father are one. And so, you know, that seems to be the whole point is just as I can, you know, he will say, my sheep hear my voice mm -hmm. in verse 27. I know them and they know me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So 
Jesus, they, no one can snatch them out of Jesus' hand. He says no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. And that, that leads to the statement that uh, I and the Father are one. So that's just the logic of the passage, I okay. think, dictates that, that we go with the revised standard version. I wonder why they, why they changed that. Because it's just because of the nature of the textual variation. Uh, Vaticanus, that that mm-hmm. one of our best manuscripts has a, the reading that is that is translated in the new RSV. Okay. And um, um, but it's one of these things where all of our best manuscripts are kind of all over the page. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's an, that's an important and interesting space there. But here, I think at the end of the chapter, we find all of the themes in John ten related to the good shepherd and his sheep summed up: protection, there's right. relationship, and eternal life. Okay. Yeah. Did this whole thing on Jesus giving his life, um, how is this put forth by John? I mean, this is kind of a big, a big deal. It becomes a big deal also with our reformers. I mean, is this agency of Jesus having this choice or does Jesus because just obey or does Jesus have to? And I think, I think this might be an important. And I would say it's both. And okay. I would say it's both. And, so um, one of the things you find here in, in this passage that's unusual in the whole New Testament is that Jesus not only says that he chooses to lay down his life of his own accord, but he also chooses to take it up again. Now, the language of the rest of the New Testament is that God is the one who raises Jesus mm. to life in the resurrection. So this is this is interesting in that Jesus asserts his agency not only in the choice to lay down his life but also in the choice to take it up again. And and so that's an interesting feature of this passage is how Jesus phrases this agency. Now he he does um you know, he has this interesting statement in, in, in verse 17 that, the, that he will lay down his life in order to take it up again. And again, this kind of seems to be the closest thing to an explicit prediction of his resurrection in John's gospel, mm-hmm. although we've already seen that the language of lifting up mm-hmm. um, sort of implies the whole process of crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension in John's gospel. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that we see the same kind of idea here, though, and that's important to note, is that Jesus' death and his resurrection are integrally linked, and Jesus mm-hmm. is the one exercising agency in both. Mm-hmm. And he describes this in this in this terms of this word that we've seen before, exousia. Mm-hmm. He's the, has, he has this authority to lay down his life, and he has this authority to take it up again. However, you know, one of the... F- I think fundamental features of John's gospel is that Jesus always is doing the father's will. That is the whole, um, I mean, that would be the, the refrain for Jesus life in John's gospel. Everything he does is the father's will. And so while you have this unusual statement of Jesus agency Mm -hmm. and choosing to lay down his life and choosing to take it up again, um, he says that the authority to do this has been, he has received from the Father mm-hmm. as a command. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, this seems to me to be the Johannine equivalent of the must in oh, the sure. Johannine, in, in, in the synoptic pr- passion predictions, you know, where the Son of Man must mm-hmm. do these mm-hmm. things. Uh, whereas, whereas, though, I find it interesting that the, the, um, 
the synoptic gospels are rather restrained in just that simple must. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Johannine Jesus seems to go out of his way to intentionally emphasize the point that his death for the sake of the flock and his authority to take up his life again afterward are the command of the Father. So mm-hmm. he's obeying the Father right. even as he's exercising his own agency. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, now, another big thing that our reformers pick up on are this idea of the other sheep, that there's these other sheep that yeah. Jesus mentioned. Yeah. So how how do we understand that within this context? Well, this is an interesting thought that Jesus introduces into this passage, that there are other sheep that do not belong to this fold that will listen to his voice and follow him. Now, you know, one of the things I found when I was looking at some of the commentaries on this is that, you know, we can understand this one way in in the setting of Jesus' ministry. We might understand it a little bit differently in the setting of John's community because, you know, John's community was probably in Asia Minor and and the others uh, uh, that were, the ones that were other in that setting were probably different from the ones that were other in the, um, in the setting of Jesus' ministry. But I think in Jesus' ministry, the implication is that the fold Jesus is referring to is the Jewish people as the primary mm-hmm. recipients of the promises mm-hmm. of, to Abraham and the electing grace of God. And the other sheep then would represent Gentiles who believe in Jesus or the early church. But in Jesus' mind, these are not two separate entities, but one. He says, there will be one flock, mm-hmm. one shepherd. Now, this whole statement in, in verse 16, though, calls to mind an earlier one in John's gospel when the disciples questioned Jesus about his interaction with the woman at the well in Samaria. And, you know, it's like they, they, they can't wrap their heads around the fact that why would he even be bothering to, you know, to speak? to speak to a Samaritan woman, you know, because in their minds, you know, the, the salvation was not only of the Jews, it's for the Jews. Right. And, and so um, he responds to their um, attitude by saying, hey, the fields are ripe for harvesting and I'm sending you to reap for that for which you did not labor, which raises sort of a tantalizing question of who did the labor for wow. that harvest in Samaria that they were going to harvest. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I think the clear implication is that Jesus was challenging them to broaden their vision to include those outside the fold of the Jewish people as a part of, of God's redemptive purposes. And I think that's very much the, the case here. Yeah, yeah. You are going to be um, yeah, surprised that Calvin has this very similar take that you just presented. You know, I, I, you know I, 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 that keeps happening, and I'm like... Okay, I like that. I mean, as a, as a 21st century Presbyterian, I, you know, I don't agree with everything that Calvin says in his in his um, in his uh, systematic theology, but I I love his commentaries. Yeah, he really, you know, he he's the one that makes that basically that observation that Alan did. So that's pretty, and and of course he picks up a lot of his stuff from Augustine. So yeah, and he, he talks more about that later. But well, um, and hey, Augustine, Calvin. That's not bad company. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so anything else you want to share no, with us that's, in this analysis? No, that's, that's what I had for today. Very good. Well, we will come back and we'll have some interesting things to present about our Reformation period. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. We're back, friends, and we have a real treat for you today. Christy's going to lead us through some interesting dialogue about how the Reformers interpreted this passage. So take it away, Christy. Sure. 
Well, I want to start a little bit talking about the dissemination of the ideas in the Reformation. And, you know, and we are in, in modern day um, uh, ministers, we think often, well, how are people hearing the messages that we, that we send? And a lot of times we do it in a newsletter or we are preaching the word. Um, and in today's COVID, we have a lot of things that we're, we're, putting over on some type of internet or, or zoom. Um, of course in a, in the reformation, the main way was through, um, preaching the word, but the other main way was through imagery and, um, very frequently. Now we met, we talked about, we have the eight, 1485, we have the birth of the, um, excuse me, 1455, um, the printing press, Gutenberg's printing press. And so by the time we hit 1517, uh, the beginning of the Reformation through 1520s, we have printed books and we have quite a book trade going, but we actually don't have a lot of people that can read yet. So accompanied with these books and also these printed pamphlets, which are like early newspapers, we get a lot of images printed. And those images are used to push through all kinds of Reformation ideas. And this, of course, we talked all day about this is such an image-filled passage with sheeps and shepherds and things people can envision, can envision. And of course, it's a great topic for people to draw pictures of. So I pulled up one of the most famous um, 16th century woodcut images. Now, a woodcut was designed, it was actually carved into a block of wood, and it was designed so it could be printed along with, with the text. So if you, if you have a, they, they put these into Bibles, they put these onto, onto the pamphlets that went out, the, the, um, all different kinds of places you'd find it. And they would use it over and over. So usually one woodcut was not necessarily used in just one publication, but might be used in several publications. Um, and so the one today is um, by a Nuremberg artist named Barthel Baham. Um, he was actually, uh, uh, and this is this is all about the the good shepherd or the sheep in the sheepfold. It's really the, a better terminology for it. Um, and uh, he fifteen twenty four is when they've dated this too. Although again, it's one of these images. It doesn't seem to have one specific thing that he he crafted it for. Obviously, probably a Nuremberg printer. Probably that Nuremberg printer stuffed it into all kinds of um, different books. Um, Nuremberg was a major printing center in the 16th century, it was one of the free cities. So they could get by with a little bit more, um, a little bit more reformation kind of stuff than some of the other cities, especially early on. However, Mr. Baham will get kicked out of Nuremberg for 1530 <laughs> <laughs> because he, uh, he's considered godless and he starts mm. questioning things like transubstantiation, which again, these ideas are out there, right. but Nuremberg was kind of going back and forth on how it was uh, limiting its printers. And we find this a lot and these people are kicked out and moved somewhere else. Uh, but anyway, this particular one, um, he's before he leaves Nuremberg. Um, and so Alan and I are going to kind of describe this, what we're seeing in front of us. And we found a, a um, an image that's actually colored. Now, normally it wouldn't have been colored, but it's easier for us to decipher. Um, and so this is going to tell us a lot about how people understood this passage, how this passage we're trying to put out 
to us within the context of the 16th century. So you know what that means. It's going to be anti-papacy. It's going to be um, uh, pro the little guy. It's going to question um, uh, what is true faith. All these images reveal these. So first we see this huge sheepfold, but it's not like you might think a little enclosure. It looks like a church. A church. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Even has almost a steeple on, on one side. It, it does indeed. And so in this sheepfold church that they've identified, you have um, um, you have the main door, the the gate, I think, is what it's referring. And in that gate is clearly the Jesus figure. And just like our medieval portraits, Jesus has a little You can see halo. him by his halo. That's right. <laughs> and um, there also is, it looks like a commoner holding a key next to Jesus. So we know that that's you know, the key to get in. That's Maybe he's the gatekeeper. Maybe the gatekeeper. Right. Exactly. And then in front of there is... Um, a sheep looking up towards Jesus, someone praying um, on his knees, obviously a commoner, someone who's quite impoverished sitting there against the by the door. So there looks like begging alms from a rich man. I think so. Yeah. I think so. And and so that's what you see there. And then yes, you see this rich guy. He's kind of it's like he's looking away from the door. Um, he's looking away from the man who's begging from him. And, yeah. Yes, as well. And so like he's maybe too good for for the whole space then we move on and there's um if you there's windows if you will in the in the sheepfold like um and so what we see there are images of a monk (laughs) people that are getting in by the wrong way um you see some more wealthy type uh courtiers getting in you see the pope and you know that's the pope because of the um, the Pope scepter there and the crown mm-hmm. at the very top of that saying, look, these folks are not entering by the gate. Um, and then. Well, and it almost looks like, you know, the, the, there's a pre, there are a couple of priests there and, and um, you know, it's like if they, if they pay the fee, they can get into the sheep shed as it's called uh, the wrong way. Right. And of course, 1524, this is when, you know, right after we have uh, this big, big uh, ruckus against the selling of the indulgences. So that's exactly what that's going to be referring to there. Now, interestingly, in this whole mayhem that we're watching, in the background, you see Christ on a cross with all these sheep um, around around the cross. So... um, they're kind of missing the point because here's Christ over here on right, the cross and, and, right. and all this other stuff is going on. Well, and when, when I when I saw that uh, part of the image, I thought of, you know, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And so that seems to be mm-hmm. the idea. Exactly. You know? But but they're not paying any attention to that. <laughs> the, 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 the Pope and the, and the priests and the monks, they're just concerned about collecting the money from the rich people so they can they can get into the sheep shed and then in the background and i'm not sure um you see some shepherds and then you see what looks to be maybe a castle and that may i'm not sure that may be the nuremberg castle back there but um i'm not positive on that one but it would make sense with mountains in the background Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so anyway what's fun about this um is all of a sudden a, a passage that they would have heard and known um has a new a new interpretation in front of them telling them 
all that stuff that you've seen around you, all the, all the pomp and circumstance, all, all the monks, they don't get it. But these simple folks like, like you, you can get, you can understand this, that you can understand who the true Christ is. So it's really, um, it's very much a, a polemic against the Roman Catholic church, um, which was one of the main themes and, and suggesting of, you know, who are the, who are the true, who are the, who are the true ministers mm-hmm. of, and, and who should you be listening to? These, they don't get it. No matter what they tell you, they're not doing it the right way. But it seems obvious who the bandits and thieves and strangers are. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, and uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's important because when you have an image, and the image is seen over and over and over, this becomes how you understand things. Mm-hmm. And, and mind you, Many people still, you know, still largely an oral society, um, oral and, and visual society. So people aren't are, are going to pay a lot more attention to this image than we might. T- we have so much coming at us today. They're going to start to see this. And this is going to become part of their understanding of this scripture. Yeah, that wasn't primarily a visual culture in that day. Uh, not visual in the way that ours is, where exactly. you're bombarded with images all exactly. the time. Exactly. Yeah. But the images that are there become more ingrained in mm-hmm. your mind. Um, mm-hmm. And so they, they tend to read them. And, of course, the effort to make... I mean, this is an incredibly beautiful image, which is something I can't portray here. It's, it's pretty spectacular to think, you know, this, this would have taken quite some time to, to make, um, especially carving this into wood. And well, it makes it clear, you know, um, their, their views about the Catholic Church and, and the whole structure there. And, you know, I, I think, I mean, how many times would this have been reprinted and republished over and over again mm-hmm. over the years? Yeah. So that, so that, again, as you said, I mean, this would have shaped their understanding of John chapter 10. Exactly, exactly. So um, th- that was really fascinating, Christy, with, uh, with that uh, image of the sheep shed. And, and, um, but yeah, let's move into the text and see how the reformers re- uh, interacted with the text. What kind of, what did you find there? Sure. You know, it's it kind of interesting, so the things that are, that parallel what Alan had talked about earlier. Um, I think, um, you know, one of the questions that I was looking at was this whole idea of the leadership. And like this art piece, they tended to read this within the context of their time. So I think there was this, like, observation that, that there was this Jewish leaders were the ones being criticized. They jumped, and they then turned that into a criticism of the church um, and, and, and the church leaders. And I, I, I read things like, all heretics fit into that category. <laughs> and how they defined heretics could have been a whole variety of, of people that like we've discussed before that were on the hit list. <laughs> so an interesting thing. Um, and uh, there was definitely... Um, from Calvin and your reform reform traditions, I also saw it with Ecolampadius, and a, um, a German um, a German reform scho- uh, pastor, um, um, a, a Musculus. They all kind of saw this as an identity of who are the elected, mm. and and those are the sheep, and those are even the sheep that don't necessarily know. I mean, there's a sense of that of Calvin's 
total depravity here, that the only way these sheep know is that they're awakened to the knowledge of God, um, but that they are still part of the sheepfold. So this Mm. really interesting, so even your ministers are considered part of the sheep in terms of Calvin's Calvin's um, analysis, um, but those are those are ones that have been, if you will, awakened to it. But it sounds like there can be some sheep that are sheep, but they don't know they're sheep. <laughs> correct, correct. So really interesting. Mm. Um, and of course, another piece, um, kind of moving on from that, then was obvious to to uh, Calvin that the other sheep were the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Um, so he really talked a lot about the the initial church being for for the for the Jews and then later on the Gentiles and that that all still part of sheep all part of God's elect mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you will yeah um, one of the other fellows um, which I thought was really interesting looked not so much at the higher folks and even there's even a little bit of grace for some of those folks which I thought was interesting mm. um, and you wouldn't think of the reformers as being too gracious, especially toward folks in the Catholic hierarchy. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like this sense of, well, maybe it's okay if, on occasion if you run away. And you have to think about what that run away would be um, if it doesn't jeopardize other people. And it kind of re- even reflects that there's this sinful nature that's still there that might mm. lead people astray. I thought that was interesting. Well, we already saw, you know, in France, there were people who were staying in the Catholic Church because even though they had right. Reformation sympathies, it was right. it was a huge deal in France to leave the Catholic Church. Exactly. Uh, Calvin puts it this way, um, uh, referencing Augustine. I prefer greatly the moderation of Augustine, who allows pastors to flee on the condition that, by their flight, they contribute more to the public safety than they would do by betraying the flock committed to their charge. Mm. Um, saying that there's times for this, and 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 also reference Tertullian in there, he said, who is much harder on these folks. Yeah, I'm so. sure he was. I'm sure he was. <laughs> that that sounds like Tertullian. You know, interestingly, I found some discussion about this in in the uh, biblical commentaries regarding um, the sort of the paradox that if the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, who's going to protect the sheep? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, some of that was discussed too, right? right. Uh, and and I think I think I think basically they're pushing the detail of the parable too far. And you know, parables are images and they're metaphors, and we we're not meant to take every detail and and just take it to its logical um, end. That's I think that's a really important point because we kind of want to do that mm-hmm. with these and mm-hmm. that does make a lot of sense well and that was that was that was what was done for centuries in the church through an allegorical interpretation Absolutely. you know they would take every detail and try to figure out what exactly it meant you know and that reminds me of calvin who actually goes out of his way um to say look don't don't push this too far yeah. even calvin himself recognizes that he says that uh, he just notes you should not um, you should not scrutinize too closely every part of this parable. Right. That's what he says. Right. <laughs> well, and I would say that's true for the parables in general. I, I agree. I agree. Um, I think um, another interesting piece here was this part of Jesus's agency, which they also picked up on. Um, very interesting. Um, so it was this, this, this strange combination between that Jesus had the choice to do it to lay down his life, but yet 
it was like extreme obedience. And so this kind of kind of back and forth that was interesting there. I think my favorite observation that I read from them was they talked about how we fell into sin with Adam's disobedience and it was Christ's obedience that then would give us eternal life. So what took us into death, what takes us into life. And I thought I hadn't thought about that. So I thought that was an interesting. Well, and that, that really is essentially the crux of Romans chapter five. Um, yes, and, it is. And right. Romans chapter five. You know, unfortunately, a lot of people approach that passage as if, as if it's teaching original sin. It's, it's, it's not teaching original sin. It's assuming that Adam's sin brought death on the whole world, mm-hmm. that, that theology. But it says how much more over and over again that Christ obedience um, um, is the remedy for, mm-hmm. for that problem and, and bring salvation. This, uh, this commentator did not talk about Romans specifically mm-hmm. in this case, but it probably was assumed yeah. um, when he was making that observation. Um, those are some of the things. That, there wasn't anything particularly radical that they offered, in a, except that they took it into their time. And I think we tend to do maybe the same thing. And mm. we can talk about that uh, mm-hmm. in our next section. Okay, thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back. And here we are looking at this passage for this next week and thinking about this whole image of the shepherd. And... When I, when I was growing up, I think that was one of my major themes or visions of Jesus as the church I attended had this stained glass window, had one, Jesus, of course, in his humanity and really as a shepherd. Um, and he was there, he was in the pasture, um, you know, with this kind of welcoming arms for all the sheep. And so it's been an image, at least that particular one that I grew up with. Um, and so I thought we'd kind of explore what, you know, what kind of senses people have about Jesus as a shepherd. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. You know, as I think about it, I think about even in children's Sunday school, if there are, if there are images that are used for Jesus, typically, you know, one of them is going to be the image of Jesus carrying a lamb in mm-hmm. his arms or having a, a shepherd's staff. And and among the sheep, mm-hmm. um, and these days, you know, there's a whole cottage industry of Christian art, and I, you know, I would be willing to bet money that every store that sells that has a number of images of Jesus mm-hmm. as a shepherd mm-hmm. on their wall for sale. Right, right, and yet, you know, when I think about shepherding, I mean. As a whole, when I think about shepherding, I think we tend to look at this as maybe a simple job and maybe one that's not very dangerous and... Well, things have changed. You mm-hmm. know, we have we have fenced pastures. Right. Um, and, and people who run sheep, you know, they use dogs to care for the sheep. They have to have dogs who are there to, to alert them to danger and, and things like that. But the sheep really can't get into too much trouble in, in right. most of the places where people run sheep. Right. Now, I would say in most areas where people run sheep, the biggest threat is either um, wolves or coyotes, as, as they say in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and so folks who run sheep are always vigilant 
uh, and they will shoot wolves and coyotes on sight because it's a, it's an obvious threat to their livelihood. Right, right. And uh, yeah, I am I'm processing. I, I I do think there's a sense of a lot of work. I, I don't know, a lot of responsibility maybe mm-hmm. with being a shepherd. Um, well, it's a bit like raising cattle. You know, the, the cattle do a lot of the work themselves, but there are certain times where you have to really mm-hmm, be mm-hmm. Uh, vigilant about caring for your for your for your flock, you know, or your or your herd because of of weather or because of other right. other dangers. And I also think it has the imagery of being a bit lonely um, mm. when I think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, solitary kind mm, of endeavor yeah mm-hmm. yeah which is really interesting and when you think about jesus going to the cross and the aloneness that yes, that indeed. had um or and or you're with sheep but sheep don't always under fully understand who you are mm-hmm. i mean I think there's an additional imagery there too i think sheep do uh develop a relationship with the humans that care for them mm-hmm. and you know at, at their level of of ability to do <laughs> right, that right they they are comfortable around the people that care for them on a regular basis one of the things i was reading in in terms of some of the reformation they, when they were looking at the sheep they were talking about this is really one of the most simple animals out mm-hmm. there you know talking about um as they were looking at the different roles that were were portrayed there was that these are sheep need to be taken care of and they're very simple animals i'll say you know for me the image of jesus as a shepherd has always been a comforting one to me yes i agree Uh, Mm -hmm. and and you know the implication has been that jesus is my shepherd that jesus is caring for me in my life situation uh, you know, I haven't, I, I don't know that I've associated with the, sh- the shepherd imagery with Jesus dying for us, yeah. myself, in terms of my, my image of Jesus, but the image of a shepherd has, has definitely been more that one of care and protection mm-hmm. and safety mm-hmm. and security, sort of like the 23rd Psalm, you know, right. that's what comes to mind right. when I think about Jesus as a shepherd. Well, and I keep, you know, I'm thinking in terms of preaching this passage i mean i think that was the direction i would head with it is Mm -hmm. is um just the peace and comfort and i think that's an important sermon that folks need to hear from time to time it is um well and and it's challenging for us to wrap around our heads around the notion that god's grace mercy and love is such that as paul says he knew us all and chose us even before the foundation mm-hmm. of the world. And so if God is, is big enough to be able to know us and choose us before the foundation of the world, he's big enough to know what's going on in all of our lives and care about what's going on in all mm-hmm. of our lives and be active in, in, in caring for us mm-hmm. in our lives. And, and, you know, that's just a concept that it doesn't make sense rationally. How can... God, how could Jesus really be present for all of us? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of mind blowing, but that's the that's the teaching of the of the scriptures is that that's how big God is. Mm-hmm. In a way, this is an imagery that I think lends itself, at least, to getting us thinking on that page in, in a yeah. lot of ways. You know, yeah, sure. Um, you know, and I, I will say this too, even though I've not thought of Jesus as the shepherd as one who would lay down his life for me. I found the language of agency to be very interesting. Um, you, 
because you don't see that kind of language in the synoptic gospels right and you certainly don't see that kind of language with reference to jesus resurrection uh elsewhere right. but True. here it's jesus has the authority and that authority has been given to him by god mm-hmm. to lay down his life and to take it up again mm-hmm. and and that's an interesting thing to explore as well i, I i'm yeah, not I quite sure at this point how i will would explore that in a sermon but um, I, I mean, I think the, the idea would be that Jesus had a choice and he made the choice. Right, right. And I think that's, uh, I think that speaks to Jesus' humanity. You know, one of those places that I think people fail to, uh, to wrap their brains around. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of cool. Well, actually. we get this idea that Jesus was on this predetermined course yeah. that he knew exactly what was going to happen from the very beginning. Right, right. And, and we, we don't see him as a real human being right. who, who did have to make a choice. I mean, right. he made the choice to go to the cross. Right, right. And in this passage, he also says he made the choice to come back to life exactly. again as well. Exactly. <laughs> so what a... Yeah, what a big thing to wrap your brain around. I mean, right? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Frank, just in the moment as we're discussing it, I, I think of of the final Harry Potter movie. I don't know if you've watched the Harry oh, Potter I films. I have, yeah. But, uh, you know, when, 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 when Harry Potter has to be killed by Voldemort mm-hmm. so that the part of Voldemort that is within him will die. Yep. Harry's in this um, ethereal um, train station where he meets Professor Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. And Dumbledore tells him he could choose to get on a train and go on and just stay, or he could choose to go back. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, it, you know, it makes me wonder, you know, about Jesus, you know. Uh, I mean, obviously, part of the, the 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 message of John's gospel is that Jesus is going to be restored to his glory that he had with the Father pre- previous. Mm-hmm. But but would that include having to come back to Earth in a physical form? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And and of course, it does. And we're we're you know the much better for us that Jesus did do that because right. I mean that kind of sealed the whole. Um, experience of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension mm-hmm. it sort of put the seal on our our ability to have faith mm-hmm. it's like paul said if christ hasn't been raised then our faith is kind of futile and, and in vain right and and that whole idea that death did not conquer him but he conquered death mm-hmm. um um is a foundational piece of our faith as yeah. well i think there, yeah there's a lot of things that go in my mind these afterthoughts that are probably not worth bringing up but um just my observation of of kind of the wow of that all when you think about um battling forces of death when you think of overcoming it um that's pretty awesome to wrap your brain around so well and it also kind of comes back to the image of jesus as a shepherd because if he has the power and the authority to do that then surely he has the power to care for us. Right, right. Yeah, true, true. Well, friends, I hope that uh, this has been helpful today. Um, It's been a fun one for us to investigate. Enjoy. Thanks. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. 
It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.